Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. So that's Exodus chapter 20, reading verses 1 to 17. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbour. Before the throne of God I have a strong, a perfect plea. Heavenly Father, we've sung of our certain and secure relationship with you through the death of Jesus Christ. Help us both to rejoice in it and to respond to it in a godly way that will honour your name. And we ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, the uh, statistics are are arresting 1.2 million people in the region, only about 1.5% of them going to church, many of them going to churches that don't preach the gospel, Uh, So by my calculation, over 1,180,000 precious souls in South Yorkshire drifting to a lost eternity. Uh, Churches across the region declining, and it's the same right across the UK. The demographic profile of churches tells us that the majority of those who go to church are well over 60. 18 to 30s are giving up on church. So in the next 20 years, churches will empty even quicker than they are now as people are carried out of them in their coffins. 
Unless something changes and soon, there will be huge swathes of Britain where there are no vibrant gospel witness. In fact, that is already the case. More and more churches are and will be sold into carpet warehouses and flats and holiday homes. Our grandchildren won't have churches to go to. If this all sounds rather melodramatic, I am not being alarmist. The statistics tell us that this is the trajectory we are on in this nation, and it has been for some time now. Now look, surely we can't sit back and do nothing. The gospel is too important. The salvation of men and women, too important. The glory of God, too important. We can't just sleepwalk our way through the next decade doing nothing, assuming that it's all going to be okay. We can't stand here smugly saying, well, we're doing all right. We're bucking the trend. We'll still be here in years to come. We certainly can't say, I'm okay, I'm saved. I'm going to enjoy life now uh, and uh, then be sure of a certain future in eternity. Our Christian consciences won't allow us to settle for that kind of self-centered approach to life. And so 2020 vision is a call for us to act. It is a call for us to put our money where our mouth is, and I choose that phrase quite deliberately. Because while I hope, as Pete said, we will be stirred up and motivated in many ways through this vision, we are unashamedly focusing on our financial response today, asking if we can give more so that we can do more to try and make a difference in Fulwood and South Yorkshire and through training and sending leaders, make a difference across the nation and as we send out mission partners, make a difference all over the world. We want to give what we can so that we can do what we can so that we can get to the end of our lives and say we gave it our best shot. So the next generation will say they tried their best. So today we're asking everyone in the church family to consider our financial response. Now, to help us do that, please turn back with me to Exodus chapter 20 that David just read for us. Page 77 is the page number. And if you like taking notes, then here's the first heading. There's only two headings tonight. Here's the first one. The Lord alone redeems us from slavery. The Lord alone redeems us from slavery. Look at verse 1. God spoke all these words. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Crucial to see that when God spoke the Ten Commandments, the children of Israel had been rescued from Egypt. That is verse 2. Through the Exodus, led by Moses, you'll remember, through that miraculous parting of the Red Sea, God had brought his people out of Egypt, the land of slavery as it's described here. They had been freed from a life of misery and utter hopelessness, delivered from a life that led only to death. They were on their way to the promised land, a land of milk and honey. A land of plenty, a land of life. What a future. Now that is exactly what has happened to us in Christ Jesus. So as we read about the Exodus, the New Testament equivalent, of course, the great redemption in the New Testament is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through the cross of Christ and his miraculous resurrection from the dead, God has delivered us from a life of slavery. When I say that, I'm not talking about the... uh, the human trafficking that goes on here in Britain in greater numbers than we care to believe, although that, of course, is slavery. And I'm not thinking about those who are seriously addicted to drugs and alcohol and pornography, although they are, of course, enslaved. No, when I say that, that we are enslaved, I'm thinking about Jesus' own declaration. Do you remember his words in John 8? Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. 
And when Jesus first said those words, uh, the first hearers couldn't believe it. We've never been slaves of anyone, they said. And I guess that's our immediate knee-jerk reaction too. We live in a liberal democracy. In our democratic society, we have the vote. We decide. We're free. We're not ruled by a dictatorial, tyrannical regime. And in our increasingly liberal society, we're not constrained by any of the social norms and restrictive demands of the old puritanical straitjackets of generations past. From the sexual revolution of the 60s to the gender fluidity of today, we've broken out of the restraining shackles of previous conservative straight-laced generations. We're free. Don't believe it, says Jesus. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Try and live differently tomorrow. And you'll realise the truth of that. And if we're honest, we all know it's true. Whether it's an attempt to turn over a new leaf at the beginning of a new year or during this season of Lent trying to be more self-controlled or just any endeavour and then failure at trying to be a better person. We all know we can't stop sinning. We can't live perfectly. We are slaves to sin. Jesus was right. That's one way we're slaves. And then in a more specific way, I'm thinking about our slavery to other masters, to our desires. We crave, well, power, popularity, satisfaction, security. And we are slaves to those things. And as a consequence, slaves to money, because so often we look to money to give us those things, to take us to that promised land of whatever it is, popularity or satisfaction. And so what we do with our money will look different to different people because we have different goals, different promised lands. Uh, But uh, just see how it works out, how we use our money to try and reach those promised lands. Those whose deepest desire is for security won't be great spenders of money. In fact, if you look at them, they'll live quite modestly. No, they're just amassing their money, as much money as possible, saving it up, believing that money will keep them safe and secure from all the struggles and ills that this life might throw at them. So some people don't seem to be spending a lot of it, they're just tucking it all away. Then on the other hand, those who who long to be accepted, they do spend money to make themselves attractive and desirable to others, and maybe to make themselves fit in with those around them. Those who look to pleasure and experiences to give them meaning in life, they splash the cash too, spend it willy-nilly in order to have all the experiences that life might give them. And then others want money because it makes them powerful. They treat money differently once again. Do you see the point? In every case, money functions as a saviour to give us what we think will bring us freedom, to take us to the promised land of security or satisfaction or popularity or power. But how we deal with our money depends on what we're aiming for. Either way, in the process, I become a slave to money, needing it to give me what I so desire. See, I'm a slave to sin, I'm a slave to my desires, and I'm a slave to death. I love that verse in the, uh, uh, in the book of Hebrews, where the writer to the Hebrews explains that Jesus' own death frees those who all their lives have been in slavery to a fear of death. It's a wonderful thought. Jesus Christ frees us from the slavery of death. He alone can do that. Uh, It was one of the key reasons that I became a Christian, because of this fear of death. 
in my teenage years, my best friend Lawrence Crowther and I just, just used to look up into the night sky and we'd um, try to get our minds around infinity and space going on forever. Have you ever done that? We couldn't grasp the idea of infinity and so we'd say, there must be an end of space, an end to space. And then as soon as we imagined the end to space, we imagined what was beyond it, oh, did our heads in. And then from infinity, Lawrence and I used to think about eternity. Not just space going on forever and ever, but time going on forever. We couldn't imagine not existing. Have you ever thought about that? We couldn't grasp nothingness. Our lives coming to an end was a terrifying prospect for us. And then one day it happened. Lawrence died suddenly. And so having looked death squarely in the face at 17, I was acutely aware of my own mortality. And so at 20, what a relief it was to hear the sweet and saving news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who died for my sin to put me right with God and the one who rose from the dead, guaranteeing life beyond the grave. That was liberating. I was free from the slavery of death. Death hanging over me no longer had a hold over me. The Lord alone can liberate us from that slavery. It's um, coming up to eight years ago now since my mum died of cancer. My brother and I uh, spent the last week of her life at her bedside. One morning, just a few days before she died, on the way into the nursing home, I heard on the radio that the weekend's Euro Millions lottery was going to pay out a record 190 million euros. That is more than 160 million pounds. And as I sat next to my mum's bedside, I said to my brother David, you know, mum could have all the money in the world. She could have £160 million right now and it wouldn't do her any good whatsoever. See, nothing, including money, can redeem us from death. Only Jesus can do that. On our own then, we are slaves to sin, to our desires and to death. But, verse 2, the Lord God, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, brings us out of slavery and he sets us on the way to the promised land, the heavenly new creation. And uh, in that new creation, just think about it, a future in which we will have all those desires of our hearts met forever. That is such good news. It leaves us rejoicing in our God and it must leave us wanting others to know him and that message too, surely. There's no other way to know this freedom. No other Lord who can deliver us from slavery. Money won't, nothing else will. So what better way to spend our money than in helping others to know this life-giving freedom through Jesus Christ? The Lord alone redeems us from slavery. Secondly, the Lord redeems us for him alone. The Lord redeems us for him alone. God said, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. See, having been rescued from slavery, verse 3, I am now free to worship the Lord, to put him first and above and beyond all other gods. It is the first and greatest command. And what a loving and kind thing it is for the Lord to tell us to put him first what it, how kind it is for him to tell us, do not have other gods before me. Not that everyone sees it as a loving command of God. Years back, a bright university student completely flummoxed me when he said, if God is God, he wouldn't need our worship. 
And then referring to the first commandment, he said, any God who makes this sort of demand must be a dictatorial maniac who is either totally insecure or completely bound up in his own self-importance. I didn't know what to say. It was one of those moments when I thought to myself, I clearly have not thought this through well enough. I need to find an answer so that I'm never caught out on this question again. When you think about it, the uni student has has a point, doesn't he? If I or anyone else demanded that you worship me exclusively and put no one else before me, you'd think there was something wrong with me, and there would be. So why does God insist that we have no other gods before him? Is it, as the student suggested, that he's a dictatorial, insecure maniac, bound up with his own self-importance? Well, of course I'm going to say no. But how do we know that's not the case? Well, again, remember the context. Remember verse 2, coming before verse 3. He has redeemed us. And when we do the, 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 right, the right translation from, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we remember his salvation, his redemption, came through Jesus Christ's sacrifice on a cross, proving that he loves me. He died for me. He wants the best for me. He's certainly not just out for himself. You see, the first commandment does not spring from a God who is sad, dictatorial, and controlling, but from a loving Lord who's prepared to give his life for me. And so I can be sure that verse 3 is for my good. And how is it for my good to put God first before all other things? Well, because as I put him first, I find that that is what I was made for. When I put him first, I flourish. When he is my all, my everything, I am more me and more satisfied and more fully human than I can ever be. I used to wear contact lenses. I say used to, I still wear them when I play sport. I used to love wearing contact lenses because I didn't then have to wear my glasses. I used to love wearing contact lenses except on the occasions first thing in the morning when putting my lens into my eye would drop on the floor and you see contact lenses are made to live and survive in one environment your eye uh, they when they're not in your eye they can survive in the solution in the pot the optician gives you but they can't survive on the bathroom floor for long in no time at all they dry out and shrivel up and become brittle and hard and crack and so when you drop one it's a race against time of course you dare not move because you don't want to stand on it You can't see to find it because you don't have your contact lenses in and so the panic begins to set in. And all this is happening before 7.30 in the morning. It's no way to start your day, which is why I don't wear contact lenses any longer. Now, like contact lenses, we're all made to live in a particular environment, an environment in which we flourish. And that environment is in a relationship with the Lord. And like contact lenses, when we're not in that environment, we become dry and brittle and eventually break and crumble. And so God's command for me to put him first is for my good, for my highest and ultimate good. Indeed, have you ever thought about this? If God did not tell me to put him first, he would not be kind and loving. He would not be being God at all. The command to have no other gods before him is the kindest thing God can tell us. This is for our good. And you see how it helps us on this vision setting day. First, we should want this for everyone. Because we know how good it is to to be in relationship with Jesus Christ, we should want everyone to have that wonderful relationship that they were made for too. But secondly, and this is really helpful for us today, 
This is a commandment for us. Verse 3 is for us. You shall have no other gods before me. Comes immediately after verse 2. You have been rescued. You've been redeemed. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me, is speaking to the redeemed people of God. The people who've already been rescued. People like you and me. And isn't it interesting that the first thing the Lord says to his people is you must have no other gods before me because that is going to be our constant temptation. Christians are all the time tempted to put other gods before the Lord. If you don't know that, you're not being honest with yourself. We are all the time wanting to put other things before the Lord. Relationships, career, success, acceptance, love, comfort, all the things I've mentioned already. There are a myriad of other gods that pull on our hearts, calling us to follow them. And once again, just because we're thinking about this this evening, so often the God of money is the way to access those other gods. Now as we draw to a close, let me unpack this just a little bit. See how money acts as a substitute saviour. So we feel the need for rest. We're exhausted and worn out from the demands of life. Uh, We want something to look forward to in life. And rather than look to the God who promises to give us rest, we crave a holiday. And money buys us our relaxation in the sun. Then money is my saviour, do you see? I can't cope without my holiday. Money's going to deliver. Money is my substitute saviour. And then money acts as a substitute deliverer. I feel trapped in this life that it's going nowhere. I certainly don't want that for my children. But rather than look to the Lord who delivers us from a pointless life and guarantees us eternal future, I need to um, find something that's worthwhile in my life and I need to give my children the best education so that they can thrive in life and have all the good things that makes life so worthwhile. And money buys me a good education to get the best job, to earn enough money, to have all the things I want and deliver me from a life of mediocrity or poverty or being an also-ran. Money's my saviour, money's my substitute deliverer, and money is my fortress. I, I look to the future with fears. Of course I do, we live in a scary world. I feel failing health and an uncertain economic future. But rather than trust the Lord who is my fortress and my stronghold, I buy health insurance Invest in a high-yielding pension plan and tuck money away in a savings account so that when hard times come, money will keep me safe. Do you see, then money has become my fortress. My fortress, my deliverer, my saviour, all the ways the Bible describes the Lord. Now, please don't mishear me. It's not wrong to invest wisely. It's not necessarily wrong to have good education. The question is whether I'm trusting money to give me the things that are my promised land. These are the things I really want. And I'm going to turn to money to give them to me. The preacher and author Tim Keller writes, something is safe for us to maintain in our lives only if it has really stopped being an idol. That can only happen when we are truly willing to live without it. When we truly say from the heart, because I have God, I can live without you. So Jesus said, you cannot serve both God and money. 
Interestingly, he didn't say it's kind of hard to serve both God and money. And he didn't say it's always going to be a balancing act to serve both God and money. He said you cannot serve both God and money. Something has to come first. Either the Lord is your God or something else will be. Either I'll put my trust in the Lord or I'll put my trust in something else. That's what we've been exploring in the last few moments. And so the Lord says, have no other gods before me because that is what is best for you and me. But please, as we close, don't mishear this, and especially when it comes to money. God doesn't want our money. He wants our hearts. And why does he want our hearts? Because when we love him and serve him and worship him, when we put him above all others, we become what we should be. We're freed from slavery and from masters that cannot give us what we long for anyway. And we flourish and find a delight and joy that cannot be found anywhere else. He doesn't want our money, he wants our hearts. And of course, one of the best ways to ensure that we give him our hearts is to give away our money. And so on this Vision Sunday, for the sake of the lost and for the sake of our hearts and for the sake of the glory of God, will you consider giving what you can? Let's pray together. Thank you, our Lord and God, that you are such a loving Lord, that you've shown us your great love in sending the Lord Jesus to die for us. We thank you that you have redeemed us from slavery and set us on our way to the promised land. And we thank you that you're such a loving God that you won't leave us there, but that you tell us not to put anything else before you, to have no other gods before you. And we pray you'd help us to believe that that command is a command for our good. That as we obey it more and more, as much as we can, we find ourselves, we find ourselves fulfilled and complete and satisfied. And so on this Vision Sunday, help us most of all to remember what a great God you are. And then help us to respond, not from guilt, but out of gratitude. In Jesus' name. Amen.